a listener production. As humans, we seem to lurch from one near and present danger to the next in terms of our attention. And so the job of a good reputation risk manager is to have some sort of dashboard which keeps all of the dials in front of them and the management team. It's not to allow one current crisis to overshadow the other risks. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. What happens when you're on the nose? When your brand and reputation, or your organisation's brand and reputation, literally goes down the gurgler? Customers leave, people don't return your calls, and worse. How does this happen? How does a person or a business go from a positive reputation and often seemingly overnight lose their positive reputation and brand? It's not always as simple or as obvious as it might seem. And sometimes there are similar patterns for individuals and also organisations. My next guest works with boards, CEOs and leadership teams that are dealing with a crisis a reputation disaster, and the common behaviour patterns and blind spots that can prevent crisis or a disaster. Cardin Calder is a financial services reputation PR and communication advisor. She helps finance sector boards, CEOs, leadership teams and CMOs to build and protect their personal and corporate reputations. And in this episode, we're going to explore reputation risk and how to prevent it. Welcome to Fast Track, Cardin. It's lovely to see you. Great to see you, Margie. Great to be here. So help us understand what is reputation risk? I like the definition of reputation that involves an action. And the best definition I think I've heard of reputation and reputation risk is the risk that you lose the support of the people who matter most to you. So it's actually quite an active definition. It means those people aren't prepared to act positively towards you. It's not just what they think. Okay. So if my reputation is that people don't want to be around me, they're not attracted to either me as a person or a brand. Am I capturing the essence of it there? It is. It's it's not only what people think of you, it's whether they're prepared to act supportively towards you. So if you're a brand or you're a CEO, it's not just what people on the street say about you or what your customers think of you. It's the extent to which they're prepared to buy your product or the extent to which an investor is prepared to put money into your share or the extent to which an employee is prepared to work for you. Yeah, I really love this. So it's about an active, proactive action rather than a detraction. So it's not just you lose your reputation because someone's dissing you on Facebook. It's actually somebody's not being proactive about you. Correct. It's that they won't act supportively towards you. We can measure sentiment, but action is the ultimate telltale sign of loss of reputation. So what would common reputation risks be? Look, the really the ones that always seem to attract a lot of attention are related to other risks in the business, particularly those around conduct. So the ones that really grab headlines are when a CEO does something or it's implied that they've done something bad to another person or to a group of people. So if you look at recent history in corporate Australia, we can talk about Rio Tinto or AMP for two very different reasons. Now those brands are regarded to have sustained reputation damage, but they've also suffered loss of stakeholder support 
because of the things that happened. And when you're saying stakeholder support, people stop buying their shares, people pull their money out of their companies actively. Do people stop trading with them? Well, if you look at both of those, they suffered incredible censure from institutional investors. So the very parties that they rely on to support their stock price, i.e. the owners of those two companies, made clear what their views were on the things that went wrong with those organisations. So their investors came to them and said, we're not happy with what's going on. And those investors, in this case, in the form of superannuation funds, represent Australians and others who hold the shares. And it wasn't just the superannuation funds. There were some really high profile investors in AMP's headstock who went to them and expressed dissatisfaction with the way that certain matters had been handled. Mm. So they put them on notice effectively to, to change. Is that right? Correct. And it's, you know, the way that it was reported, I don't have any inside knowledge of that particular case, but the way it was reported was we think the board has been tone deaf and has completely failed to be transparent and to manage this well. So we don't know if the organisation itself is on a cultural and moral compass point that's sustainable. So they were really signalling that their intention to exit from the stock. And what you've seen since then is other actions from other, let's call them stakeholders, it's a fancy word, but really one of the things we've seen is staff exiting as well. And in the example you talk about Rio Tinto, if they had come out and said actively, we're so sorry, we're going to change this, would that have changed anything in that moment? From my memory, they didn't do that. It's really interesting. Apologies are a whole category in themselves in terms of reputation management. Sometimes you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. An apology can be one of the most effective reputation strategies, not only because it maintains the stakeholder support, but because you demonstrate humility as a brand or a leader. And what you're talking about, your memory of that example is that the brand didn't apologise either in the moment or soon enough and they had a price to pay. And the other example I've named, AMP, you could say exactly the same thing. And a lot of the commentators said that at the time was that a public apology was too slow in coming. And if it had come at different timing, potentially those issues would not have been as bad for either of those brands. Yeah. So what are the other common reputation risks? So other than conduct, um, whether brand or individual, the other sorts of things can be things like financial. So if you imagine if your financial performance is poor or your stock price performance is inconsistent or not good, that's obviously a, a critical one. The instant that your investors or your employees or other your counterparties in the market start to doubt the accuracy of those results, the, the instant you start to run into reputation issues, obviously. Um, interestingly, financial performance drives reputation up to a point and then it becomes an inverse relationship. So if you're a sustainable, profitable business, it is good for your reputation. If you are a super profitable business and you're judged to be too profitable, it actually drives your reputation down. And we've seen that in years past with, say, Macquarie Bank and the big four banks and our telcos. If an organisation is judged to be too profitable, it's actually really bad for your reputation because there's a judgment that you're not doing the right thing. So some of these categories of reputation risk can be good in certain times and then bad in others. A fascinating one, I think, is leadership. So leadership with overall reputation actually doesn't drive it except in a crisis. 
So what's been really interesting in the last year, and this is a statistical, um, a regression analysis done by the Reputation Institute, but what's been interesting in the last year, and it's interesting for governments at the moment, is actually a category of reputation risk is leadership behaviour and leadership capability. But actually in peacetime, leadership typically doesn't drive reputation unless you get it really horribly wrong. But in crisis, leadership does drive reputation often more than anything else. So that's another one of those ones which has sometimes got a positive relationship and sometimes has an opposite relationship. And then there are things like, you know, how you treat your customers, how you treat the communities that you do business in, all those things that we typically think of and that we judge brands by. Are you nice people is some of what it comes down to. Do we trust you? Yeah, so interesting. I was speaking to a small business today that's doing very well during COVID because it's a delivery-based pet food business. And they were just saying people are really driving them hard and they're finding it difficult because their reputations are on the line with the social media that's so easily accessible for people to say, I didn't get this within five minutes of ordering it and they're terrible people. Yeah. I'm curious though, what are some of the warning signs that a brand might be headed for a bit of a PR crisis? Oh my goodness. There are so many ways you can pick it and it never ceases to amaze me that people don't pick it. (laughs) (laughs) We need to know. Right? I personally think almost every corporate reputation crisis is preceded by warning signs. But on the other hand, one of the things I hear most commonly from executives inside organisations is, oh, no one could have predicted this. And I think good corporate affairs people, many of whom you know, have often seen this coming and they've been warning about it for years and they were just not listened to. And that leads us into why they're not listened to, because one of the warning signs of a reputation crisis that's come through in the research I've been doing with directors is CEO dominance. I love to hear your definition of CEO dominance as a reputational risk precursor. So interestingly, I've been asking a number of directors in some quite structured interviews what they see as being the warning signs of reputation risk. And one of the things that came through, and I did not coined the phrase CEO dominance, a former colleague of mine did, but it is reflected in many of the comments from really notable company directors and former CEOs, is that where you have a CEO who has a tin ear or who is tone deaf, you are much more likely to face a reputational crisis in the predictable near future. So it's the old story, he or she doesn't listen. Right. So so people are coming to them and saying the culture's not good or there's somebody over here not doing the right thing. And what happens is because they don't act on those warning signs, the crisis happens. Correct. So I've called it in my work a tin ear or tone deaf. So the tin ear is exactly what it sounds like. Bad news gets brushed off or rejected. Sometimes it gets brushed off or rejected because of the person bringing it to the CEO and the CEO doesn't treat that person with respect. That can be the unfortunate lot of risk managers, but I also hear it from a lot of female CEOs, is that when they bring bad news, sometimes it's more likely to be rejected. But other times it's just a CEO who doesn't want to hear the bad news. There can also be the situation where someone is tone deaf. They might be bought a series of stakeholder negative data points, you know, little warning signs that things are not all okay in a particular part of the business or with a particular set of business practices or with a particular pattern in customer feedback, for example, but it's not heated. Mm. Or, you know, it's almost, there's this expression someone used last year, which is that was the tap on the shoulder before the punch in the face. Mm. And it's the taps on the shoulder that go unnoticed sometimes that lead to the punch in the face. 
Wow. And that's very visual and visceral description, but it really makes very good sense. So are they the only leadership behaviours or attitudes that can contribute to the crisis, the tin ear and the tone deaf? There are so many, Margie, but some of them fall into a bucket that I call sort of idiocy or innocence, which is certain patterns of thinking or mindsets that seem to show up repeatedly and that lead to bad outcomes. And the sorts of things that we've seen there happen over and over again are things like learned helplessness, where an executive team might be so used to hearing bad news, they just don't act on it and they've almost normalised it. So they no longer react when they hear stakeholder feedback that to an outsider joining that team might be really alarming, but it's become a part of their normal. So they just don't do anything about it. They don't think they can do anything about it. So then you have this sort of learned helplessness paradigm. Other things can be a thing that I call wait to fail, which is that um, we don't do anything about a risk proactively. We know that there's a risk. We're hearing feedback. We've got every reason to believe we might run into trouble, but we're not prepared to spend any money or invest any management time in it until it's a real danger and it's right on our doorstep. The irony of that, of course, is that by the time it's actually a live issue, it's much harder to stop it. And the other sorts of sort of these, some of these mental maps, outdated mental maps that can be an issue are that management teams can be a bit slow to acknowledge and act on risk for all sorts of reasons. That can be, you know, people call it groupthink, but I think the idea of groupthink is probably a bit outdated, but it can be a sort of a shared paradigm that's just not quite right. It might be shared by a management team, it might be shared by a whole industry, but it actually doesn't reflect the facts that are facing that industry or that business. Mm. It's just that we've all started to think about something a certain way and we've gotten into this unhelpful pattern that leads to a blind spot. And when you say that, it's a bit like those sociological shifts that have occurred over the last few years and people, for example, it comes to mind that people are asking why are women angry, yet there seems to have been such a spike in the need for change by all women across sectors. That's a good example. Yeah, a lot of people didn't see it quite coming. Yeah, but the warning signs were there for a long time. So if you look at that as an example of a social paradigm which has changed the risk profile of a lot of businesses and a lot of leaders, Mm. all the preconditions for that have been there for 100 years. Mm. So when we go back to the head of this conversation and some people say, oh, we could never have seen that coming, I would argue that you could have seen, let's say, the government's women problem in inverted commas coming a long time earlier, generations ago. The preconditions have been there for a long time. We'd had a number of issues here and overseas which were catalysts, if you like, for a change in community sentiment around some of these matters. You could then observe the shifts in community sentiment. It went from, at various times, not just women being angry, but to then a number, I noticed a shift in sentiment last year where a number of male executives in leadership positions became quite angry about the same issue. When you start to see those tipping points and when you start to see a number of signals pointing in the same direction, what happens next is quite predictable. Mm. So you have to then at some point in your scenario planning say, okay, well, we now know we're on risk for a really significant shift in this area. And it might be that absolutely nothing has changed for you as a leader, for you as a government, for you as a business, but the context has shifted. So contextual changes are one of the early warning signs for reputation risk. So this might sound like such a simple question from a non-reputational risk expert. How do you avoid reputational risk? Can you stop the crisis? I think you can stop most of them, but it's a matter of having a shared view of what that risk is and actually wanting to stop it and believing that the risk is real. So one of the biggest barriers to stopping them is people believing that these things are real. 
you know, in the aftermath, everyone's very wise. But if you think about pandemic as a really good example, I remember a colleague of mine said, well, the only good thing about the pandemic is now people will take the pandemic clause in the BCP seriously. And what that person was saying was three months ago, I tried to get people to look at pandemic as a category of risk and to do some scenario planning around it, but they wouldn't. And they told me I was, you know, bat bleep crazy for even raising it. And now here we are and now they take it seriously. So the warning signs are always there. Scenario planning is a really good way of thinking yourself into a future situation where you may face some of these things. But also you can look at shifts in community sentiment, in media reporting, in stakeholder behaviour, in employee preferences, in your own customer's behaviour. And those things will normally give you pretty good clues about the universe of reputation risk that you might face. And can I ask a question here about the distraction of something like a pandemic, which is now front of mind and everyone's going, oh, yes, remember the pandemic. But doesn't it make it a bit distracting and we forget about other risks, like whether it's climate change or whatever else it might be? Is that a truth? It's true. As humans, we seem to lurch from one near and present danger to the next in terms of our attention. And so the job of a good reputation risk manager is to have some sort of dashboard which keeps all of the dials in front of them and the management team. It's not to allow one current crisis to overshadow the other risks. I think most businesses actually need a really good reputation risk dashboard that has a number of metrics or a number of dimensions they're measuring and that keeps it in front of management teams so that we don't lurch, you know, goldfish-like from one happening to the next, but we have some sort of long-range view of risk. So, Cardin, let's say the worst happens and you do find yourself dealing with a reputational crisis. What are some of the strategies that work to protect the personal or corporate reputation during that process? I think there are a lot of sort of truisms around this. There are lots of phrases that people repeat over and over again, and some of them actually have real validity. One of the first things that people will talk about is getting out in front of it. And that has real merit. You know, there's this idea that if you allow other people to tell your story in a crisis, you will not like the direction of that story. And so people use this expression, control the narrative. And sometimes that's a bit glib and it's a lot simpler to say than it is to do. But the idea of telling your own story as a brand or a leader is an incredibly powerful one. As humans, we're very susceptible to believing the first thing we hear in a way or to believing from the person we know best, you know, the person who is most credible for us. And so if you're a brand, you can use that to your advantage. And the way to use that to your advantage is actually to tell your own story. It's not to allow others to do it. If you like the story others are telling and you think they're going to do a great job for you, then in a crisis, by all means, let that unfold. But almost always, you're not going to like the direction of the story if others are telling it. So that's one, if you like, crisis management belief that actually has some validity. Another is the thing that you talked about earlier, which is to apologise. You know, as humans, we like our leaders and our brands to take responsibility, even if they didn't create the problem. So one of the things that we've observed is a really solid management strategy is to own the solution, even if you did not create the problem. And when brands or leaders are seen to not apologise or to not take ownership of a solution, even if the problem is not of their making, then we end up with media and other stakeholders almost chasing you down and, and you can't catch a trick. So stepping into leadership and truly owning the solution or the way forward is a very, very functional 
crisis management strategy. And it's also the right thing to do probably. Right. I think it's called leadership. (laughs) Call me cynical, but it's actually called leadership. Leading is not waiting to see what happens or waiting for events to take you in a certain direction. Leadership is talking to experts, charting a course, having a narrative around why that is the right course. It's demonstrating how you're delivering or you're on track to hit the milestones in that course. You know, it sounds crazy, but that's kind of Leadership 101. And if we don't give our audiences a chance to observe that from us, we have to expect they're not going to have a lot of confidence in us. And what else is in the toolkit? One thing that came through really clearly in this research I did um, last year in the beginning of this year is this idea that bad news and problems really don't improve with age. And these are all, you know, I use these phrases because they're in common use and they're really easy to understand. But one executive in the research that I spoke to said, you know, one thing I've come to understand is that problems don't get better on their own. And this particular person I was interviewing talked about how he'd gotten invaluable advice from a director and a mentor at the beginning of his career, which was, don't ever bring us bad news when it's too old. Only wine improves with age, but bad news really doesn't. You need to bring it to us as soon as you possibly can. And so you can imagine if you've got a CEO who has a tinny or who's a bit tone deaf and people are bringing that woman or that man bad news and they're not listening to it, there's no opportunity to fix it. But the point is, if you capture a problem and it's small, you've got a lot more control over the outcome. So early action is one of the most important things people can do. Mm, Okay, fantastic. And anything else in the toolkit for us? There's another really inelegant expression which is better to serve it than have it served to you in reference to the old shit sandwich. If you have a really bad bit of news, there's always a choice that leadership has to make about do we deliver that now or do we wait until just before we think it's going to come out or do we wait until it's actually out and then do we deal with it? And the answer to that can depend on whether you're listed or not, obviously, but usually you're better to have your hand on it and to be determining how it's managed than to allow others to determine how it makes its way into the public domain. If you're an individual and you're working in an organisation and there's a risk to your reputation in some way, do the same principles apply? It's interesting. I actually think you can think about brands almost as people and personalities. I think a lot of it does apply. You know, we judge people based on their behaviour. We judge brands on our experience of their behaviour. So, reputation is often determined by the people who have the most to do with you. So if you're an individual, the people who carry the strongest views of your reputation are the people who know you directly or who've worked directly with you or who've worked with you the longest or who've had the most contact with you. The same is true of organisations. It's usually customers and employees who are the dominant force or the, you know, the people who primarily determine your reputation. So a lot of the same things are true. And the big lever that individuals have is if something's gone wrong or if they think their reputation is threatened, one of the best things they can do is pick up the phone to the 25 or so people who matter most to them in their future and who they already know and who already think well of them because those people are going to already have a positive view and whatever they hear from the individual is going to be much more influential than something they read in the newspaper. And that's because we're we're experienced-based Humans, you know, it's our experience of people. It's what they call moment of truth, obviously, in customer service. 
And last but not least is this idea of measurement. So organisations, I believe, measure most of the customer experience these days through NPS scores. Are there any other measures or things for people to look out for that we might be not quite so obvious when we're looking at how to judge our or manage our reputation and measure it? A really common one these days, which I think most sophisticated organisations measure, is social media sentiment. It's not a representative sample of humanity or of your stakeholders, but it does give you useful information for early warning signs. One group of people who I think are massively undertapped and could be incredibly useful to many big organisations are alumni, former employees. What I've observed over the last few years as I've watched a few of the financial services brands go through some pretty difficult times are that your alumni can be either your biggest supporters or your biggest detractors. And of course, because they've worked for the organisation, their voice carries a huge amount of weight. And so I'm really intrigued by this notion that if we engaged our alumni differently, our former staff, and if we kept those people close, and if we understood what they see as our reputation risks and what they see as the risks in the business, and if we kept those people a little closer than other stakeholders, then I think not only would they help us avoid reputational crisis, but I think they give us really helpful management information and they would act as our brand ambassadors if supported to do that. Cardin, what an interesting chat today on Fast Track. I just want to thank you so much for joining us, sharing your vast and deep knowledge about this topic and making us think a little bit differently about what it is to have a reputation and what the risks might be. So thank you for joining me on Fast Track today. Thanks so much, Margie. It's a great show. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.